Well, brothers and sisters, let's behold God's living word. By turning to Colossians chapter 2, we're in verses 8 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. That's page 984 to help you get there quickly. Earlier this week, Gallup revealed a poll that they recently took that revealed a record low of 20% of Americans believe the Bible to be the literal, literal word of God, down 24, or down 4%, 24% in 2017. So in just five years, 4% of the population has decreased and stopped trusting that the Bible is the literal word of God. 29%, which is the highest ever, believe that the Bible is a book of fables. Helpful and practical, but not entirely true. And in addition to that, church membership, church attendance, and general belief in God is sliding quickly. And we kind of see that, I think, in, even just with our own eyes. Now, the church has always been under attack. But these... Measurements give us indication of how the church is under attack today. And so it's helpful for us to consider this as we enter this section of the book of Colossians. This passage really does shed light as to why Paul wrote the book in the first place. Remember what he said in chapter 2, verse 4. Let no one delude you from plausible arguments. These false teachers were attacking the church at Colossae. And they were bringing in or attempting to bring in their destructive heresies at every turn. And last week, Paul actually gave us the solution to this. He said, you receive the Christ Jesus, the Lord, and be rooted in him. Well, this week, it kind of kicks off two weeks of talking about false teaching. And today, we're going to be introduced to the first warning that he gives. He gives two more warnings next week. But he gives the first warning this week in verse 8. And as we continue on in the book of Colossians, we're reminded today that the best way to combat false teaching is to remember the gospel of Christ. And so if we have a summary today, kind of a, a bite-sized portion of what this text is saying for your um, appetite as well as the direction that we're going in the text, it would be this. The church is to reject any teaching that is not according to the gospel of Christ. Let me say that again. The church is to reject any teaching that is not according to the gospel of Christ. So Paul here gives us some indicators of what false teaching is, and we're going to get to that. And then he gives us a healthy dose of the gospel to respond faithfully to Jesus and remind us of who Jesus is and all that he has done. And so within this little portion of the text, he gives us three subpoints that we want to stand firm in today as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is this. We want to stand against false teaching. This is going to be found in verse 8. The second way we can stand firm is we must embrace the fullness of Christ Jesus is fully God, and this Jesus now dwells within us. And then thirdly, we're going we're gonna to recognize in verses 11 through 15 that we have these beautiful and glorious benefits in Christ Jesus. And so all of our subpoints come from the text, and I want to make sure that we always remember this. These aren't my ideas. I have nothing to offer you except the word of God, and it's the spirit of God that must speak to us today for us to understand these things. But let me read the text for us, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the, full, the, full, uh, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, 
who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Now look with me in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is where we get our first point today, right there in verse 8. We must stand alert against false teaching. Paul encourages them to see that nobody, no one takes them captive. Now, there is a specific teaching that's coming against the church, but that word no one or nobody is very general. See to it that no one takes you captive. Being taken captive by something here resembles that of a kidnapping. See to it that no one kidnaps you with regard to believing something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul never really defines explicitly what the heresy is. We kind of have to piece that together based on the arguments that he makes and based on the instruction that he gives. But what we do know for sure is that the heresy is attacking the doctrine of Christ. That is why he's given us such a robust theology of Christ up to this point in the letter. And if it's attacking the doctrine of Christ, it's also attacking the doctrine of salvation. How is one saved. Now in verse 8, Paul identifies the threat as philosophy and empty deceit. This is the only place in scripture where the word philosophy is used. Now I'm not necessarily suggesting that he has Plato on the mind here. Uh, he's not thinking about the uh, study of philosophy the way that we think about the study of philosophy, which is the fundamental questions and categories like ethics and life and the world and humanity, but we would recognize that Paul is against any philosophy that ultimately does not find its yes in Jesus. But here specifically, he's writing against a certain philosophy that is against the Colossians. It's a philosophy that's suggesting that Christ is insufficient, that he's not sufficient for them. And we see different clues that help us along the way here. In verse 8, he lays out three things that empty philosophy consists of. And the first one you'll see is this. It's according to human tradition. Paul isn't railing against tradition in general. There's many traditions that are good. In fact, we're going to partake here in the Lord's Supper momentarily, which has been a tradition throughout the church. But we must remember it's that Christ gave us this tradition that we participate in with him. That's why he highlights the word human here. That word human is very important because it means that this philosophy was birthed in the mind of man and not in the mind of God. That means the cornerstone of this teaching does not find itself in the scriptures or in the mouth of God, but in man himself. And the second element he gives us that would suggest this is empty philosophy and vain deceit is that it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now this phrase admittedly is hard to interpret. There's several different phrases or different ways that this can be interpreted throughout theology and history in the church. But the dominant word for Paul's day, for that ele uh, the dominant way that elemental was translated in Paul's day was the elements of the world. Things like earth, wind, fire, and water. These things in creation were considered things that were worthy to be worshipped and for people to put their faith in them. And if we're honest, we can see throughout the world in different religions that people put their faith in nature themselves or in the things that nature provides. We even have phrases that we throw around like mother nature. Well, that next word, spirits, is also important to help us translate what he's getting at. Now, spiritual forces or the heavenly realms has been a theme throughout the book of Colossians to this point. 
We were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into his marvelous light. Next week, we'll talk about the dangers of the worshiping of angels. And here again, he's talking about spirits of the world. Now, in the ancient world, the material components of the universe were often associated with spiritual beings. So if air is something that people were worshiping, it's typically the god of air that they were worshiping or the god of the earth that they, were, they, that they were worshiping. This is a pagan practice. So we know that this false teaching had some pagan roots in it to some extent. So with the background that we have and the ancient world view that was popular, our best suggestion is to suggest that the material elements of the world had some sort of connection to the spirits of the world as well. And if I could just sum it up in a brief statement, it would be this, let no one take you captive by anything that has been created. Earth, air, wind, fire, and any demons or rebellious creation that claims that they are over them because all things are subject to who? To Christ who is over all things. But notice the third component of this empty philosophy. It's not according to Christ. This is the strongest argument against the false teachers and it serves as the center of Paul's argument. Any teaching that challenges what Paul has already said, and just a reminder, what Paul has already said is that Christ is completely sufficient. He is supreme in all things. If anything tries to kidnap our thoughts against that, it's not according to Christ, and this makes it heresy. This makes it heresy. The teachers are probably not denying that Jesus has some responsibility in salvation or isn't a, an important figure in it. They're simply suggesting that there's more to worship than Christ himself. Next week, we're gonna get into some legalistic requirements that they're adding to their teachings that food and festival laws must be required and that asceticism is necessary. That's the hard discipline of the body to make sure that uh, one is growing in righteousness and as I've already mentioned, the worship of angels. But as Douglas Moo, a New Testament theologian said, anything to Christ that is added is actually taking away from him. Anything that is added to Christ is actually taking away from him, which means this. If Christ is a part of the teaching, if little Christ is a part of the teaching, it's Christless teaching. It's not something that we should ever want to participate in. And I want us, beloved, to be on guard. We have a responsibility to be alert by what is going in our ears and what we are considering to be truth. We are to determine what is truth by clinging to what has been revealed in Christ Jesus, not taking our eyes off him one degree. If he is the full truth, the way, the truth, and the life, we must cling tightly to this. He is, in fact, all sufficient. There is nothing that we need that is outside of him. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Everything is in him. I would just encourage you if you are taking notes to write that down and to return to it often. Everything is in him. Beloved, I do want us to look internally this morning and to recognize that these threats are true. False teaching is everywhere, and unlike Paul's day, we have access to it in more ways than he did. Now, the false teaching might not be the exact same as it was in Paul's day, but the tenets of it are the exact same. It's trying to devalue Christ or to find Christ insufficient. It's trying to captivate us in some way to take our attention and our hearts from our Lord. Some of these teachings come from inside the church, and we are to guard against these things. We are to guard against life. And doctrine, some of these gospels, and I can't get into all of them today, we'll hit some of them 
again next week, but some of these you're familiar with, such as the prosperity gospel, which suggests that Jesus wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy. And the problem with that teaching is it has Jesus affiliated with it. Jesus is the means that we get this, get these things. But what the teaching is very subtle in is it actually has the goal to be something else. We use Jesus to get health. We use Jesus to live longer. We use Jesus to be happier with more money. And just like that, we've taken one shift and we have said with this false gospel that Jesus is insufficient. Another one is the self-help gospel. The gospel that uses language like Jesus and sins, but at the ultimate goal of the self-help gospel is you. It's the person. You can live a better life. You can uh, move forward and progress. You can get over the hump and reach your maximum potential. The problem with this gospel, of course God wants us to flourish in this life, but the problem with this gospel is that it takes the center of the story off of Christ and it places us at the center of the story. It uses Jesus to help us conquer our Goliaths. Well, let me tell you something. Goliath has already been conquered. He's been conquered by God. We don't have this in our world anymore because Jesus is sufficient. There's a very sneaky and crafty political gospel out there. Now, I am not suggesting that we should not be grateful for the country that we live in. We should not be active in our society and voting and doing all that we can to bring about good earthly change through the gospel of Christ. This is what I'm talking about. That our hope is so tied up in a, go in a political gospel system that our hope is actually revealed more in the outcome of those political decisions or votings than they are in the gospel itself. Like I said, it's crafty. It's slippery. It has us wanting things. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And I can relate to this because I'm a young father with young children. It's my wife and I raise them. But if you are a young family and you're thinking about the America that your children are gonna grow up in, and you're worried about it, and we should be worried about it, there's onslaughts everywhere. But if your thought is more about hoping that America is better for your children than praying that your, that your children would know and love God, it could be an empty deceit and philosophy that has crept up into your mind and is taking you captive. Christ is all sufficient. Some of these threats are outside the church. We even see movements that are using gospel themes like justice and reconciliation. And these are good themes. But anything that is divorced from the gospel of Christ is not the gospel. A half gospel is no gospel. And so what we want to make sure that we do want to serve and to take care of the poor, we have a responsibility to do that, church family. We have a responsibility to model reconciliation within us. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. But anything divorced from Jesus is not the gospel. And I want to make sure that we as the congregation know that we can hear things that sound good we can serve a cup of cold water, but if that cup of cold water is not served in the name of Jesus, it's not the gospel. We see attacks on the family today, on what marriage ought to be, and how society is defining marriage and the family unit in general. We see these things, and they're all over us right now. And here's the reality. The more we turn on our TV, the more we pick up our little phones and we ingest information, we can be slowly deceived by any teaching outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we have to all throw our phones away. I'm saying we must be wise and prudent with the gospel that has been given to us by the apostles. We must be on guard as these things 
are trying to sneak into our life and they have snuck into the church. We see churches that are falling away because of this. The very thing that Paul is fighting for, be on guard against any other gospel is the same message relevant and prevalent for us. And if we think that we are immune to this, we have already taken one step in the wrong direction. We as the body of Christ hold the doctrine together. We are to be rooted in Christ. I think sometimes we forget that Satan hates us. That he wants to devour you limb from limb. That he is a lion and that we are little mice and he can do real damage to our minds and our hearts with any teaching that is out there. He wants to destroy, he wants to distract, he wants to deceive. He wants us to take our eyes off Jesus the King. He wants us to think that he's not sufficient. He will even let us say his name and say that he's all sufficient. Yet in our own minds, in our own hearts, they drift. Now I can't hit all the false teachings that are out there today, but I, I do ask you, what easily sways you? Where do you find your hope oftentimes? Is it running to this or is it running to that? Is it thinking on this more than you think about the gospel itself? Where does your foot slip into? Now after this warning, Paul goes on by encouraging them to embrace Christ who is their all-sufficient Savior. Look what he says in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is a great Bible verse. I hope you highlight this Bible verse, 9 and 10. I, I hope that you put it to memory this week at family worship or in your D groups. He says the full deity dwells bodily in Christ. That means the body of Christ, his body, is the permanent and pleasant residency of God. He's the whole fullness of God. He's saying the same thing like twice. Like, you ever heard somebody say very definitely? It's like the same thing. He's saying the whole fullness of God. He wants us to understand that the whole fullness of God is in Christ. And consider the contrast here. He's calling this other teaching vain and empty deceit. And he's talking about the rich fullness which is in Christ Jesus. This teaching which is called the gospel. This kind of helps us to see perhaps what kind of false teaching is going on. Maybe it's Gnostic that didn't believe that Jesus had a literal body or definitely pagan in nature. But the point of it is that the fullness of God is in Christ. Which means, if this is true, that there is no space for any additional teaching if the fullness of God is in Christ. Why add anything if the fullness is already there? So he is hitting this completely. Jesus is not close to God. He's not like God. Christ is God. And this is what he is getting at. And if this is true, then why would the Colossians find their fulfillment in the earth or in the angels? There's only one place, that one location for our worship. And Paul goes on in verse 10, he says that we have been filled in Christ. So the one who is fully God then fills us. He's not suggesting that we're deity, of course not. He's not suggesting that we're equal to Christ, of course not. There is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ. And then Christ then dwells in you. And this, as Paul said in 1, 27 and 28, is the hope of glory as it dwells within us. So fullness here, just summing it up, it means sufficient. If he's full, it means sufficient. I love this quote by Jeremiah Burroughs, the great Puritan. He says, I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. 
Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. If you want that quote, just email me and I'll send it to you this week. So we are called to be utterly dependent on this Jesus as Paul has been reminding us and he's laying out this false teaching. He's pointing them back to the gospel. Paul is destroying any additional structures that the Colossians might be holding on to. Anything that they're holding on to other than Jesus. When we depend upon Christ, we get rid of the scaffolding that's in our lives. The things that are holding up that he has nothing to do with. My question for each of you and then us as a church, just a a plural question. What structures are we holding on to for our support in addition to Christ? What things are we considering in our life in addition to Christ? If it's in addition to Christ, it actually reveals where we think Christ is insufficient. And I want, I want that to sting us a little bit. It's meant to because the bottom line is this. Every single person in this room, because we are not God, we, are, we have to deal with the reality that there are things that we put our trust in that are not Jesus. And the most important thing is to confess that that's true and then to recognize where that is. So where in your life are you putting faith this morning? And an application for you is to write those out. To write those down. I'm putting faith in what my grandchildren think about me. I'm putting my hope in hopefully one day being married. I'm putting my trust in the job that I have so that I can provide a life for my family that... I could only dream of rather than wanting them to know God. Oftentimes, these things are not bad things, by the way. They're just distractions that keep us from the Lord. So what are you trusting in? And when that answer comes about, it actually reveals what we believe or where we believe Christ is insufficient. And lastly, as we kind of enter into this final part of our sermon Today, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15. And if Christ is all and we are to embrace him in all, we are able to embrace Christ in all these things based on who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And this is what Paul reminds the Colossians of. He reminds them of what Jesus has done. And he reminds them who Jesus is for them. And this is where we find verses 11 through 15, our true identity in Christ. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with you, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So our third point today, we must recognize the benefits we have in Christ. We must recognize the benefits that Paul lays out that we have in Christ. We stand against false teaching. We embrace the fullness of Christ and his deity dwells within us fully. And we recognize the benefits that we have in Christ. And this is just so powerful. Paul's first encouragement here, I do want us to see his first encouragement because we're going to go through this pretty quickly because it's a meaty little text But he gives the idea that righteousness is not done through any sort of ordinance or any sort of tradition. And this helps us to recognize that it's not just a pagan teaching that's crept into the, or is attacking the church, but it also might be a Jewish teaching that he is trying to get at here, similar to what was going on with the Galatians. He's saying, stop trying to be righteous by what you do, 
For there is a new covenant that's made in the blood of Christ. Now, he gives the example of circumcision here. In the Old Testament, circumcision served as a sign of God's, for God's people that showed their separation from the pagan nations. We see this in Genesis 17. And if they obeyed God, they were a part of the people of God. And so the idea is that teaching was suggesting that you must be circumcised even to be sa- or in order to be saved. But I do want us to remember, even what the scripture says about itself in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that the idea of circumcision always had its spiritual roots fulfilled in the Messiah. It says all the way back in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy, that it is God who's going to circumcise the hearts of his people. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. So when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, it's the Messiah who circumcises his people's hearts with his own hands. Not hands that are human, but hands that are holy and divine. And when this circumcision occurs, look, we put off our old self, as it says right there in the text. We're going to get after this a little bit more in chapter 3, verse 9, but This whole idea very quickly is as the old self is sacrificed or crucified, killed. It's in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We see this in Romans chapter 6. So because of Christ and the circumcision that he provides, we have now the ability to be faithful by putting off the flesh and clinging to, by faith, the things of God. Now see here the evidence of the circumcisioned heart, the circumcised heart. He hops over into another symbol, baptism. So we are buried with Christ through baptism. Now baptism does not save a man. We're not, we do not believe that baptism saves a person. It is a symbol that recognizes the inner circumcision of the heart. It's an opportunity to profess that Jesus has done this work internally in me, and now we're outwardly expressing this to the faith community. Look with me in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is verse 12. That's kind of our hope and our understanding right there. We were buried with him in baptism in order that, just as Christ raised from the dead, we too might walk in new life. When Jesus does a work on us, we're identifying with him in baptism. That means we identify with him in his death. That you, the old person, was with him in the tomb and were raised with him Through faith, as the text says, and this is saving faith. This is faith in the powerful working of God, as we see there in the middle of verse 12. We trust that the same Christ who dwells in our hearts and died for us and raised from the dead, now saves us and raises us to walk with him, to be made new in him, to be alive together with him, as the text says says so we're no longer slaves to our flesh we're no longer interested in the things of this world like human traditions or elemental principles or vain philosophies but this new circumcision and the power of God that raised us to new life has made us alive together with him and now we are able to walk with him by trusting in him in all things that we do in this life everywhere We walk, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There is a deep, intimate union that occurs when Christ circumcises the heart. And we identify with him in baptism. And he is reminding the Colossians of everything that Jesus has done, as I am reminding You, everything here is written in the past tense. You were circumcised. You were baptized. You were made alive together with him. This is the work that Jesus has done. And at the end of verse 13, we see that he has forgiven us of all of our trespasses. 
How does he do this? Well, he gives the answer in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is using language that the Colossians would be familiar with. These are legal terms. There's a debt to be paid. We're familiar with this as well. We see this in our own life. When there's a debt to be paid, you're expected to pay the debt. Well, the, the debt that, that Paul is talking about is the debt of sin. And it's a record that stands against every single person in all of humanity. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty or the payment of this debt is death. And guaranteed, no matter where you are today in the faith, if you are in the faith, if you are out of the faith, I promise you that this record of debt that stands against you will be paid. It will be paid by you if you don't trust Christ. This looks like you pay the penalty of your own death. That's a life separated from God for all eternity in a place called hell. And it's not a figment of our imagination. That is a real separation from God. Or by putting your faith in Christ, he pays the penalty of your death. He is the one who took it upon him. And he is the one who forgives trespasses. The scriptures say only God can forgive sin pointing again that Christ is God. Now, lastly, and this is the victorious news for every single Christian, and I don't want us to miss this today. In addition to the forgiveness of our sins, we have pure and complete victory because of the work of Jesus. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Everything that was stripped from God in the garden, he got back in Christ. Remember when before he ascended to the right hand of the Father in Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's disarmed all the rulers and authorities. Don't worship the elemental spirits of the world because Christ has disarmed them. See to it that you recognize that he openly shamed them as well. You remember the scene that occurred at the cross. Jesus is dying on the cross, probably naked completely shamed by the people who were putting him to death. For me and, and for you, they were laughing at him. You've saved others, why don't you save yourself? Come down from the cross. They're, they're mocking him. And this passage tells us in that moment, he is openly shaming them. He's turning the tables on them, mocking and he, through all humility, is taking everything back that was stripped from him. This is a glorious and victorious scene. In that little last phrase, he triumphant over them in him. He is over all the darkness, over all creation, every ruler, authority, principality, he is the war king of all creation. And here's the crazy thing that this text is telling us. And that Jesus is alive in you. There is no teaching that ought to distract us from the Christ who now dwells in us. And is completely sufficient and able to reign and rule not just the cosmos but our lives. Now, I want to throw out a warning here in just the last closing minutes. If we're honest with ourselves, we often think, just as these false teachers did, that you must do more, you must be circumcised, you must add something for righteousness' sake. Do you ever feel like you, you need to read your Bible? You need to go and serve. This is the expectation that you are expected to do. That you, you have to do more, and then when you do more, you're going to receive more from, from God himself. Brothers and sisters, I want you to take that, cap, that thought captive. And I don't want you to be left in any sort of empty, vain, deceit 
by believing in it. We are to be busy on the things of God, but it's not through our own work and through our own means by which God accepts us. We are to rest in Christ and his work that was completed on that cross. This is the truth for us. This is the meal that feeds us week in and week out. I never remember what my wife makes for me, but I always remember that I'm not hungry anymore. We are to go back to the cross of Christ and be reminded of this meal over and again, rooted in him. He's the one that saved us, but he's also the one that energizes us with a right motive to do the things that we're called to do. The things like being knit together in love, proclaiming him everywhere we go. These are the things that we get to participate in, not because we have to, but because we get to as members of his body. Now, I want to kind of turn our minds and our hearts as we prepare our minds and hearts to participate in this meal. I have some questions for you that I want you to write down, but I want you to answer them privately, either on your paper or on your mind. What teachings, first one is this, what teachings and philosophies have I trusted in today that have distracted me from Christ? Every single person should be writing something down, either in your mind or on paper. What areas of my life do I think that Jesus is insufficient? I even say that he's sufficient, but my actions throughout the course of a day sees that my hope is tied to other things. My hands are held to other structures. These things, the answers to these questions reveal to us where we think Jesus is insufficient. Now, there's hope. <laughs> there's hope for the non-Christian today that doesn't know Jesus and there's hope for the Christian that we get to turn yet again and consider the cross of Christ because we have been saved by him. He nailed it to the tree, remember? This is what Paul's reminding them. He nailed it to the tree. So how do we turn back to Christ? If it's true that we find ourselves resting in other structures, in other truths, in other things, not truths, in other things, how do we turn back to Christ? Well, the first thing we want to do is we want to confess. Confession in the Greek simply means to agree with God where our sin is. We want to confess with our mouth where our sin is. And we want to turn back to him by faith. We want to leave our sin and we want to turn back to him by faith. Saying, Lord, you are all sufficient. You are everything and supreme. Lord, I want you to be everything and all to me, Father. Keep me from walking away from any truth that would hinder me from considering you. We put our faith in Christ alone. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. We consider the work that Jesus accomplished and finished on the cross. We, we consider the fact that he raised from the dead and right now, right this moment, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father, and he's a priest and he's praying for us that we would know him fully and completely. Let's reconsider these things as the things of the earth have nipped at us. Remember that he's coming again. So where do you need to repent today? Before we take the table, where do you need to repent today and hold yet again, hold fastly to Christ, the author and finisher of our salvation? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that when we do trust other philosophies and vain teachings, Lord, that we can turn to you and we can lay hold of you yet again and that you forgive us. God, would you recalibrate our minds to just trust the full and complete work of Christ. Oh Lord, would you do work in our hearts? Would you just uproot anything that does not need to be there? Father, thank you for Christ and the body and the blood that he shed for us. We're grateful in this, for this, Lord, is...
we partake in, in the Lord's Supper. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. I'd like to invite our deacons to the front as they serve us the plates. You know, this passage is suitable preparation both for the word preached and then also the visible illustration of the gospel itself. That the body of Christ was broken and poured out on our account. And this passage gives us the good news, does it not? That the legal demands that stood against us were nailed to the cross. They're not, they're not there anymore. And he disarmed all the rulers and the authorities and the principalities. Y'all, this is the greatest news in the world. We, have, we ought to have joy when we come to the table because of what Jesus has done. Those who participate in the table are those who have had their hearts circumcised by Christ, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus and have received him, who have identified with him in baptism, who are, who are striving by his grace to walk with him every day. The table is never for the perfect. There's nobody perfect in this room, but it is for the penitent. It is for the one that recognizes that victory is in Jesus and there's no other place. And this meal is, Paul tells us, it's not to be taken lightly. That's why we give you a few moments of reflection to do business with God, to take your own soul to task, to see where perhaps your faith could be residing today if it's not fully residing in the Lord Jesus. And then we get to turn and we get to hold fast to him so as the deacons serve the, ta the, the, the table, let's consider the grace of God for us today. Deacons.
received this instruction from the Lord Jesus that said that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took the bread grab the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Christ's body broken for you And in the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ's blood shed for you. And as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And he is returning. Our Lord is returning. And so, we'll prepare our hearts for his return. Uh, if, if you could, and if you're able, please stand as we respond today. Perhaps you need to respond by repenting or praying. Perhaps you've never known this Jesus and you want to. Here in the next couple of minutes, we'll just have pastors that are willing and desirous to speak to you and to share with you the glorious gospel of Christ, either for the first time or yet again.